Hi, this is Eric. Just wanted to let you know that while we were recording this, we had a little bit of a problem in that my recorder stopped after 45 minutes. So the last 15 minutes that Phil and I recorded, we're just going to have to throw out. Of course, diacritics is a very large topic, so we were planning on doing a part one and a part two. We have to move a little bit more into part two than we had originally planned. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Glossonomia. Conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Phil Hi, Thompson. I'm Eric Armstrong. Oh, you're Phil Thompson. We're yeah. talking over each other. This is who we are. Uh, you've listened, I hope, to enough of these that you know who we are by now. But And I will say that if you've just popped in for this episode, you might want to listen to some others first. Uh, this episode is all about diacritics. What and... the heck is a <laughs> diacritic, Mark? Well, by definition, a diacritic is an addition to the symbols. All the symbols that we've gone over so far indicate a particular segment of speech. Uh, you could say a particular phoneme, although a phoneme pretty exactly described, uh, a realization of a phoneme. And these diacritics are our way of going a layer deeper mm. to say that it's, yes, that symbol, that sound, but with an extra characteristic. And that gives us a new layer of resolution for doing more narrow transcriptions. Right. I, I think that it may be worth talking about this, although we've said it before, that there's narrow transcription and broad transcription, which simply means that the level of detail, how close to exactly what's being heard are we writing down. And there is sort of a parallelism between narrow and broad and the difference between a phonetic transcription and a phonemic one. Absolutely. Phonemic ones are broader, but also their intent is different. A phonemic one is to capture sort of the ideas behind the sounds and not necessarily the exact phonetic way of saying that sound. Yeah. So you might be able to adapt a phonemic transcription to your own way of speaking. Uh, or a phonetic one is going to represent exactly the way one individual says yeah. that. It's uh, what they use in dictionaries. Or, well, sometimes they use their own peculiar brand of phonetics in dictionaries, but I'd say more and more these days, dictionaries are writing things down phonetically, that is to say, using the broad or phonemic transcription. So it will have d, a, g. And you'll look at that and say, yeah, I know... That's dog. You pronounce it dog. But if I say dog or dog or dog, those little adjustments aren't useful for a dictionary writer or reader. Uh, they are, however, very useful for those of us who are doing work with speech and accents. So generally speaking, you wouldn't encounter diacritic marks in a dictionary. There are a couple of exceptions, but almost all diacritic marks are saved for narrow transcription, where yeah. we're trying to show or share a very specific quality that's peculiar to this situation, this context, um, the relationship of this word with the next one, for instance. And narrower isn't always better. I, I went through this experience with my students, having led them down the path of the narrowest possible transcription that they could do. The reasons for that were not that I thought that they should always write in that level of transcription, but that I wanted them to attend 
that carefully to a speech sound. And then, sometime later, I gave them an assignment in Shakespeare class to look up the pronunciations of a list of words from a play. And I got back the most ridiculously, lavishly, <laughs> narrowly transcribed versions of these sounds that would be utterly useless to a cast of actors. And I had to stop and apologize for having led them into that as, a, as an overriding virtue. It's better if you're trying to communicate the center of the target or the location of the target to use a broader transcription. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of the target is in that direction over there rather <laughs> yeah. than getting out the laser level <laughs> and uh, the GPS tracking device to make sure that's in, in exactly the right place. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think that it's also true that we don't have laser precision, that we might be using these diacritics in a way to get us awfully close, but there are going to be several places where, meh, we're still guessing. <laughs> there's, a, there's no absolute uh, digital exactitude of precisely what sound we're talking about, if only for the reason that everyone's mouth is different. Right. And the other thing is that we're talking about a, a means of writing something down that's that actually is a gesture that happens within mm. our vocal tract. And so we're, we're coming up with some kind of code to yeah. represent something that we do in, a, in the physical kinesthetic world. And um, sometimes the, that narrow decision about this exactly represents what's going on may capture an an element of what's going on, but certainly it's it's not the whole picture. It's yeah. like uh, representing somebody with a squiggle, and that squiggle yeah. represents what they look like, and by no means is that a three-dimensional model, textured and detailed in every way. So uh, it seems to me that the way that we might go through this is to simply, since there are so many of them, uh, and we want to touch on and uh, make a little shallow dip into each one, we might start with the list of diacritics as listed on the Wikipedia page for the IPA, which, for those of you playing along at home, is uh, or don't have the URL in front. I of have you. it right here. Oh, it's uh, if you're you're in English, it's en.wikipedia.org/wiki/international_underscore_phonetic_underscore_alphabet. So if you just search international phonetic alphabet the Wikipedia page will mm -hmm. come up pretty quickly. And then you need to scroll down quite a ways. It's about uh, almost two-thirds of the way down the yeah. page to the diacritics section. And the reason that we're going through the Wikipedia page rather than following the chart is I, I just think they've conveniently organized them by type. Mm -hmm. And the first one that they have here is syllabicity diacritics. That is to say, whether or not the sound in question is or is not its own syllable. Right. When would we encounter something like that? Well, we certainly encounter this in English in a lot of unstressed syllables. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, syllable. There isn't really a vowel between the b and the l. We just go straight from b to l. And so that l is the syllable. Mm. I think we might have mentioned this on a previous show. It's all... It's all a cloud to me at this point. Yes, I think when we were talking about uh, dark L, we talked about syllabic yeah. L, L. And, uh, and the, I think when 
when we're teaching narrow transcription, uh, the idea of syllabic and ultimately non-syllabic, the next point, thing we'll be talking about, fits into the section of teaching about phonetics where we're dealing with stress mm -hmm. and we're dealing with the idea of you know primary, secondary, tertiary stress, uh, unstressed syllables. And, and also we have to deal with the idea of uh, those kind of dictionary forms in people's minds, that if you say, well, syllable goes straight from the b into the ul, uh, a lot of people will in, have in their dictionary, in their brain, a sort of a bull, syllabal. Yeah. They'll insert a vowel there um, as a strategy, I guess, for coping with how they learn sounds. I probably shouldn't tell tales out of school, but I'm going to. I had uh, a couple of my students with a recent transcription in situations exactly like that, putting an u uh phoneme, a foot phoneme in there. And the reason is that they slowed themselves down to the point where they could figure out what they were doing and moving from the b with lips together towards the o, which had a high back tongue position, they constructed for themselves an o phoneme. Yes. And so... Yeah, they're not alone. Many, many yeah. students do that, don't they? Indeed. And uh, this event that's happening is happening for English speakers in, in the darkness, uh, in in the dusk, all cats are gray. Is that how that goes? I don't uh, know that one. Uh, I don't know wh where I come to this, but uh, when you can't quite tell, if there's not enough light on the situation, you can't really distinguish colors. Mm -hmm. And when a syllable is unstressed, your attention, the light, is not on it. And it can be very hard to distinguish what's going on there without adding stress. Or it's the observer problem that mm -hmm. the thing changes when you observe it. So L isn't the only syllabic possibility. M and N are pretty common. Yes. Apparently, you can argue that the ang symbol, mm -hmm. right, that we get in words like singing, uh, sometimes that in a word like baking, some people will go baking. Yeah, uh, and that they will elide those together, not really release the K and go straight to an ang kind of sound. I have a colleague by the name of Ngugi Wathiongo. Ngugi is his name, but I'm not pronouncing it correctly. In fact, he, he according to the linguistics resources, the ng is pre-nasal, the g is pre-nasalized. Uh, and I've had this embarrassing conversation with him where I say, so should I pronounce your name Ngugi? Uh, and he'll say, no, Googie. And I, I think he's doing exactly <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Uh, but you can imagine, nga. Uh, and between words, you could certainly get, for example, if you were to say, and go, you might very well say, ngo. Right, ngo. So I just want to bring up that there's a, I'd so just to, to to insert that would be transcribed as yes. not and go but an ng with a syllabic mark under it mm -hmm. and then go. What um, I want to come back to that in a second, but you were we're going to say something. I, I want I, to talk about the nature of where diacritics get put. I was going to yes, that's a good point. I was going to say that uh, in uh, the Longman Pronouncing Dictionary, J.C. Wells has an extra trick which is to put a superscript schwa in those cases. 
he's not using it to really indicate something phonetically. He's indicating something phonologically, which is sometimes it's syllabic and sometimes there's a schwa. Right. So those superscript in the Longman dictionary are optional, right? Yeah, An exactly. alternate pronunciation. Exactly. So don't don't think that what he's saying is a tiny little schwa. Uh, it's he's saying it's either little or little, one of the two. Yeah. yeah. So the point I was going to make is that on an eng here we've got a, a letter with a descender, that sort of J-like yeah. tail that goes down, and we run into the problem of putting a syllabic mark right beside something that sort of dangles down into its proximity. Yeah. And for almost all diacritics, there is a, a super diacritic, right. one that goes above the letter that we could replace it These with. These that we're talking about are sub-diacritics. Right, they're under the letter. So an, uh, a syllabic mark is unusual because it doesn't have that super diacritic above to use on the ang symbol. Um, probably doesn't come up often enough that people beg for it. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly, that the latest Unicode fonts put the symbol below the descender. Or do they... So they're, they're far enough down that they're not going to bump into it? I, now I'm, I'm trying to remember. I've certainly seen it where the this syllabic mark goes inside the little hook. Uh, and I think I've also seen it where the syllabic mark is below the hook. Uh, it, it, it's something that often, since most of the time in speech class for actors, we're dealing with handwritten uh, symbols, you can artfully put that syllabic mark inside the, the ang. Yes, I'm just trying on my own keyboard while we talk to put a syllabic mark Excellent. and see what happens So, uh, on an ang. Well, let me see if I can uh, figure out all the places. So certainly we can get confusion, we can get uh, N's, we can get L's like in shovel. Uh, I suppose you could argue that it's possible that you could do an alveolar approximate R as syllabic, but in that case we have an alternative as we've discussed, uh, the vowel form of the alveolar approximate R could be said to be a rhoticized schwa. So in those cases where you'd, where you'd say, bereft, I still think you're saying bereft rather than bereft, that that R that you're going to is a vowel rather than standing in the place of a vowel. But right. that's a good case in which our close examination of the issue is probably more important than which symbol we end up using. Um, basically, my typing in the background here has shown me that on a well-designed font, the diacritic will be inserted below the descender. And on a poorly designed font, it will be right over top of it. Yeah. Um, now, unfortunately, Microsoft Word doesn't handle descenders very well, so it, at least not in the Mac version. Uh, but other apps certainly do handle it very well. And they handle um, it well if, by 
nudging the symbol into the right location that's right. so it can be seen. Yeah, that that's a sign of a really well-made font and the uh, an application that knows how to take advantage of all those um, elements. Yeah. So that's good. Okay, We've so... gone through one so far. <laughs> uh, so the next one is non-syllabic, and that's a little inverted brev below or a frowny lips uh, underneath the symbol. And this is an interesting one for me because it's one that I've started using more in the case of diphthongs. And we've certainly talked about that when we've talked about diphthongs. I can't think of another really useful way to say non-syllabic. Essentially what you're saying is you might think is this is its own syllable, but in fact it's not. Uh, so if it's not a syllable, if it's not a separate syllable between two vowels, then it's a diphthong. Right. And one way of handling this without a non-syllabic is to insert the period symbol, which is uh, the marker for a new unstressed syllable. And that might be used in a word like idea. If you want to separate the D syllable from the uh, um, you could put a period to make sure that the syllable of that schwa is separated from the E vowel. Uh, and if you use that consistently, then when you ran into ia together without the non-syllabic mark, then you would assume that those are together. Yeah. Um, but um, perhaps, you know, you know, in a word where idea is being elided in such a way that it sounds like it's really two syllables, it might be helpful to use the non-syllabic um, in one context and the period in the other where it is its own syllable. And and frequently here we'll be running into diacritics that seem to say the opposite, so that there might be two ways to approach describing what we want to describe. Right. That said, I don't think if I was doing idea and I wanted to show that that schwa was its own syllable, I wouldn't put a syllabic mark on it. The yeah. expectation is that a, a syllabic mark is used for consonants that take the place of a vowel in a way, yeah. as opposed to here's a vowel that looks like it might be part of a diphthong, and really it's its own syllable. We don't tend to use the syllabic yeah. mark in that way. Because it, it's probably implied that unless we say something about it, that vowel is its own syllable. Right. So typically, non-syllabics are applied to vowels, and syllabic diacritics are applied to consonants. Lovely. Let's go on to consonant release diacritics. Stop plosives are the, the, the consonants that we're concerned about their release. That's part of the sound. And uh, so I would usually group these as aspiration, and certainly aspiration is one of the possibilities in how a consonant, a stop plosive, might be released. And that's the first one given here, and it's a tiny H uh, superscript uh, above the T. Now, we just said that a superscript schwa in the Longman Pronouncing Dictionary is a special case of optionality, but that's not the way it's working here. Here, the superscript is describing how the preceding consonant is released. And uh, I love the fact that it's a little h, because I don't love the fact that h, the symbol h, is used to describe a glottal fricative, uh, when in fact, h's in any language I can think of 
are really extra flows of air. So they should be off the chart as a different action and not described as glottal fricatives. So this is bolstering my idea that H represents an extra airflow. Yes. Uh, I should say that's Dudley Knight's idea with which I wholeheartedly agree. So unvoiced stop plosives can be aspirated. That is to say, they can have a little puff of air. They can also not be aspirated. And how that happens in English follows some pretty predictable rules. If the unvoiced stop plosive moves directly into a consonant in a stressed syllable and it doesn't have a preceding S before it, then most likely it's going to be aspirated. That is to say, take will have a little bit of airflow and steak won't. Right, because that S preceding the T sound uh, is uh, in a way taking away its aspiration. Right, we, That is part of the uh, prosodic rules of English. And uh, I'm sure we talked about this way back when we talked about these sounds, but another way that you can think about it is aspiration being a delayed onset of vocalization. Between the unvoiced explosion and the starting of phonation is this delayed onset, this area where it's just air and not voice. Yes. So it's not necessarily a lot of puffy air, it's just a place where voice hasn't started. Right. But it is audible air. Yeah. There is, it's not just a moment of silence. There is a, yeah. a sound that's being made. And it's worth noting that the IPA doesn't have a not aspirated symbol in the standard diacritic set. Um, and that, I think, for, for our purposes, is a bit of a frustration in that uh, uh, unaspirated is a quality that comes up frequently when we're dealing with accents. Yeah. So, It'd be uh, people who say ten tired turtles uh, with an unaspirated T. It would be handy to have a, a symbol, and there is a symbol in the extended IPA, and we'll talk about that yeah. more once we've gotten through the whole chart of diacritics. I should say that once we start putting diacritics onto sounds, we bring up the possibility that the lack of a diacritic means something. Mm. That that we're saying in this world where I will tell you whenever there's aspiration. The fact that I didn't tell you means that there's no aspiration. Yes. And so you, you, if you're going to do that and be that narrow, you have to be very consistent in the way that yeah. you use your symbols. And my, my problem is that I'm very inconsistent in how I use my symbols. And so I want to be explicit and say, this is what I'm doing here yeah. and not rely on people making assumptions when there isn't a symbol that that means something. So... The, there is another possibility. So we've said I could aspirate that consonant or I could not aspirate that consonant, meaning that I will start the onset of vocalization pretty immediately. Then it's also possible that there will be no audible release. And this very frequently happens at the end of a word. So most of the time when I say the word but at the end of a phrase, I'm not going to aspirate it or even release it. But instead of but or but. And so that's a sort of a, they call it an angle. It just feels... Or a corner. Corner, yeah, yeah. Name for it, yeah. So it feels to me like a little lid, <laughs> a little snap Tupperware lid over the top of it. Uh, 
it doesn't mean that you never release that air again it, because you would die. Uh, it means that there's no audible release of it. Yes, and different fonts realize the how this little corner thing looks like. Uh, in the Wikipedia page where they're using a sans serif font, the, the diacritic is longer on the uh, horizontal plane and shorter on the vertical plane, whereas in most fonts the uh, no audible release diacritic is uh, equally long on in both dimensions. Um, and you know, when drawn quickly by hand, it frequently looks sort of like the number seven. Um, but it, it's supposed to be sort of, imagine drawing a box, it's two sides of a box. I also see um, here on this Wikipedia page that it seems very much central over the symbol, and uh, I don't know whether it's just my habit, I tend to put it slightly to the right, because I'm trying to talk yes. about the moment of release. Yes, and so it sort of coordinates also with these other consonant release diacritics, yeah. which are all superscripts up to the right of the, the character. Um, the other the other thing worth mentioning here is that many no audible release final consonants are glottal reinforced. Yeah. So if I say hit, I might be doing a combo of a T and a glottal stop. Neither and of which that, you're releasing audibly. Neither of which I'm releasing audibly, and so... Uh, it is possible to make a uh, no audible release final plosive consonant, so say hit and actually not close my glottis. And if you do that going into another sound, it may have a, a different kind of onset to the next sound. So say the next sound was a vowel, you would get a very different kind of onset if you didn't have your vocal uh, tract closed at at the glottis with your vocal folds together. Yeah. Um, and that, that can have an impact. Let's move forward. Uh, I just yeah. want to go back to one little thing. It, uh, when we were looking at the aspirated diacritic, on the Wikipedia page, they show a hooktop H as a uh, variation. Yes, yes. Yes, and that tends to be reserved for languages of South Asia, where we have things like Dharma, written D-H-A-R-M-A, yeah. and that uh, these are not following a voiceless stop plosive, but following a voiced stop plosive. And there is an aspirated, semi-voiced release. Uh, I have to admit, I'm, I'm not good at modeling those. Can you do, can you do Dharma? Yeah, so a... let's try. I'll try uh, Dal and Dal. I think I'm just doing breathy voice on the vowel following it, and I don't know how I could distinguish it. Dal, dal. Dal, dal. Um, the people who have modeled it for me who are South Asians always sound to me like they're putting a little, almost like a secondary unstressed syllable at the dal. beginning, like dahal. Yeah, dahal. Um, but I, and that, I then try to do that, and they go, no, no, you're not doing it right. So yeah. I think like your, your, your uh, colleague there. It's one of those things I haven't quite figured it out yet. I, I saw a poster session at the American Dialect Society, uh, which had its conference nearby, so I was able to go to it. It was fascinating. And this poster session was about this question, about the ability of people who didn't grow up speaking Hindi or Gujarati or one of the languages that does this, their ability to perceive it, and which was, Ooh. as you could imagine, very, very low. You'd listen to the two samples, and they sound identical. 
Um, right. <laughs> but clearly people aren't getting confused between the two words that are made by this difference. So it's a perfectly, it has enough information in it that people can make that perceptual judgment. It's just, we... I think it would be really interesting to look at a spectrogram of it, to see a, you know, a waveform, to see just where in the timing that was happening so that, you know, you can use your eyes in a way to reinforce what your ears are doing. And then slowly you might be able to just start to... Well, you know, all of these, uh, the Handbook of the IPA, uh, which is a publication that's worth getting, has an audio component to it. And that audio component is, you can find it through the IPA's website. So you could take their Hindi examples and take those right. two sound samples and, and spectrographically an analyze them. Uh, so if you and I don't get around to do that, maybe a listener will do that and tell us the results. That would be fun. Let's move on to nasal release, shall yes, we? Yes, this is a biggie. Uh, essentially, it is, again, about how the sound, how the plosive is released. And in this case, it's not released orally, as it usually is, but it's released nasally. That is to say, uh, every unvoiced uh, plosive, every, every plosive involves not only closing off the oral cavity at some point, but also closing off the velopharyngeal port. And if instead of opening the part you closed, you opened up the back door and let things out through the nose, you would be releasing that plosive nasally. And that's what nasal release is. So, in a word like sudden, I'm stopping the d, and then I'm keeping my tongue in the place for the d, because it's also the place for the n. The only difference there is whether my villopharyngeal port is open or not. So, sudden, I'm making plosive in the back of my vocal tract. The hazard here that many people run into is when they do the sud part of this, they <laughs> then do a glottal reinforcement. And so they do sud, mm, and you can hear a firm mm, release of the glottis going into that yeah. nasal. To do a real nasal plosion, you can't close off at the larynx. And so you should feel air pressure behind that first consonant, sud, and then the mm creates a little pop into your nose as your soft palate, your velum, drops. And this is a very unfamiliar thing for most speakers in of North American versions of English. Uh, so I often work with people for a long time on this and frequently give up in frustration because that subtle shift of not reinforcing with the glottis is a tricky thing to let go of. So, uh, and I also think that most North American audiences couldn't discern the difference between a glottally reinforced version of a nasal plosion and one that mm -hmm. isn't glottally reinforced. I, in a way, I, I sort of feel like when working with actors, I'm preparing them to produce the sounds that audiences will appreciate and understand, but I'm also preparing them to not get caught by partially informed directors and acting teachers who are on the lookout for this as a bad sound. Mm. And so I want them to be able to say, yes, sir, I will absolutely do this. It'll never happen again. Uh, be because if you're, if you're walking through life with this marker, uh, then some people will notice it and they'll jump on you. And I want everybody to be able to escape from that situation. 
So, Phil, here's a question about transcription practice. The, mm -hmm. the diacritic is a superscript N. So if you were writing sudden, you would have S, upside down V, sometimes called hut, D, and then superscript N. Do you then add another N to actually represent the phoneme N I, with a I, syllabic mark? I absolutely would, because it may be that that's inevitably going to happen, that by releasing by releasing D nasally, I am then in the articulation of N, and, and I can't help but be there, but I am there, and so to, to my mind, I should write that symbol as well, with a syllabic mark underneath it. Right. So the the diacritic is modifying the way that D is released and yeah. not representing the phoneme of the N that follows it. Would it be possible? I don't think it would be possible to not do that syllabic N. Sudden. Sudden. <laughs> Sudden. Yeah. You would have to go to that. Yeah. Once you've released it, you're in the articulatory position of N. But could one also argue with a syllabic N following a stop like a D, could you do that without a nasal release? That's a case in which the lack of a diacritic is not meant to tell us that something isn't happening. If, there, there are plenty of times when you write something down and something will be happening that you haven't written down, and that's fine. Right. So in a way, it may be considered a little redundant. It's there yeah. to remind you of a thing that you might not normally do yeah. if you don't normally have a syllabic N, for instance. Yeah, we might not spend much time on it if it wasn't something whose variation was really important in English speaking. Right. Likewise... Lateral... Oh, sorry, go on. Uh, I was going to segue as well. The, the same thing is true of this other lateral release, uh, this other release, uh, which is the release of a plosive rather than through the velopharyngeal port, or centrally down the oral cavity, laterally out the sides. Or it could go out just one side. Some people That's do true. laterals one, one way or the other. But ultimately that shift from down the central, center line to a, a sideways release, um, it makes a significant difference in the sound quality. And typically the contrast is between doing a, a non-syllabic version of the uh, lateral approximant that would follow it. Um, so we're talking about a word like little um, with a release sideways from the stop into the, the uh, syllabic L. So I, I just want to say something about that. There is a finer distinction in the way that you just said little because that was devoiced in that moment. The devoicing, the aspiration inherent in the T was coming out through the lateral release. So is that an unvoiced lateral fricative that's being released? Mm. Or is it a, a alveolar lateral uh, approximant? Or is it that aspiration, just a slow onset time for that uh, lateral approximate that as it as it gets yeah. into the L, the opening then relaxes uh, wider on the sides of the tongue because so you... that you're not ending on a fricative. Yeah. Because uh, mm -hmm. voicing does eventually happening, happen on little, 
Um, and so, you could do it little, 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 with very little aspiration. Yes. And it almost cracks a little bit, little. Yeah. You get a kind of little puff-like <coughs> quality um, with, with less aspiration. Um, so it, in a way, I suspect that if one is being less stressing of that tl mm -hmm. syllable, you get less of that fricative quality. Frication? Is that a word? Frication? Uh, it is now. <laughs> it's a perfectly cromulent word. Yes. Uh, and, of course, we, we get it on uh, ladle as well. Mm -hmm. You can do it from a voiced sound. And then they w it will feel more like a voiced uh, uh, lateral fricative sort of sound coming out the side as it's releasing ladle. Dl, so if I'm voiceless. transcribing when Tweedle Beetles battle in a bottle mm. in a puddle, I do want to be able to make that distinction between the voicing and devoicing. Is it only in the consonant, the plosive preceding, or it, am I capable of transcribing the degree of devoicing in the lateral release? <clears throat> That's for the varsity team, I guess. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I, for me, I. I I don't know that I could do it as consistently, pr produce it as consistently as, you know, I take all that care to write it out, to tr capture yeah. what I hear. Yeah. Uh, but if I was trying to perform it based on a score, uh, that, that would probably be very tricky. And I think you and I can both agree that that is something that in mo nearly every single case of transcription, Oh, sweetie, don't worry about it. It's too complicated to go into. Uh, it's it's so esoteric to make those tiny, tiny distinctions. However, there's some place in the curriculum to be ridiculously detailed so that students will say, no, I could really consider every single part of that articulation, even if they go on to not consider it at all. I'm hoping that when actors who've worked with me are acting, they're not thinking about phonetics at all. Mm -hmm. So the introspection, the detailed introspection is valuable, uh, but you can't carry that with you into every situation. So you can go very, very detailed and then very, very broad. Yes, that kind of introspection should be saved for walking the dog <laughs> and not for performing on stage. Exactly. Or for blog posts and replies podcasts exactly all right okay that's great. let's move on please we must uh phonation so, diacritics okay so this is about the vibration of the vocal folds exactly and we already have considered in the sounds that we've described whether something's voiced or unvoiced so we don't have to talk about that but we can say that these symbols you would put a unvoiced or devoiced symbol it says voiceless here but i i often refer to them as devoicing symbols mm -hmm. under a voiced consonant so what we're saying is i know you think it's a v but it actually was more of a f so an instance where that might come up is uh i i feel alive uh that the word is alive and the phoneme at the end of it is a v a v sound but at the end of an utterance frequently we devoice 
voiced consonants, consonants, and so the way of marking that is with a little under ring. It's a circle, an, uh, not filled in circle, yeah. that uh, is beneath the symbol, and that represents the sort of air flowing out with any voicing on it. And the opposite of that is the voicing or voiced symbol, which is like a little V underneath. And so those are very straightforward. I, I think, at least my practice is, I either use them to say I'm somewhere in between. Yes. So it was not fully an F. It was a V, v approaching an F. So the under ring tells me that I should go from V towards, but not reaching the F. But it's also possible to say that the it's a fully fully made as an F, but I have said to my reader, I know you think it's a V, and I don't want you to treat the rest of the sounds, the vowel preceding, as though there were an F, that is to say, shortening it because there's an unvoiced consonant. Treat it like everything's the same, but the result is devoiced. So in that way, I'm using the V symbol phonemically with a diacritic to alter its phonetic realization. So an example of that is uh, a life compared to alive. Alive, the I diphthong is longer than in a life. And if I'm devoicing alive and saying a life, uh, by putting a V with an under ring, that would remind us that the I diphthong is going to be long in this case. Exactly. The, the other way that I'm tempted to use these symbols is to say a V with an under ring is halfway in between. So a V with an under ring is equivalent to an F with a V underneath it because they've reached from their points. Or I suppose it's a scale of four. There's V, slightly devoiced is under ring. F with voicing is slightly more devoiced, and then F alone is fully devoiced. Right. The other possibility is that it represents a uh, falling off of voicing, or of... Uh, uh, um, I, don't, I don't think it's likely that voicing creeps in. Uh, you might, you know, uh, yeah. what's more likely to be happening is this falling off. So at the end of an utterance, we might alive... And we start yeah. on slightly voiced and then it devoices. Because voice is energetic and these are usually the result of energy trailing off. Mm -hmm. yes. But so I should skip briefly ahead to the extended IPA to just say that there is a symbol for partial final release. Uh, mm. That you could put a, a bracket, a parenthesis to the right of the devoiced symbol. And that means that alive that the devoicing is partially at the end. Right. And so that's a clearer way of de denoting this fall off. Lovely. Let's leave that there and talk about and breathy and creaky voice. These are phonation diacritics, but they're, they feel to me like suprasegmental characteristics in the sense that Breathiness is something that could go all the way through an utterance, and creaky voice could also be happening all the time. And here they're being used on segments, not as overall 
things. So I think they're being used phonemically. That is to say, there are certainly languages in which the phonation quality of a segment is phonemic. That is to say, it tells you what the meaning or the idea inside that sound is. So a difference between ah and ah. I'm going to make up a word in a made-up language. Bob, Bob, Bob. <laughs> and those could mean three different yeah. things, whereas to us, they're just different qualities of yeah. a guy's name. And so those, actually, when I'm asking my students to transcribe one another, uh, there comes a point where they usually independently start to notice breathy voice, creaky voice, and nasality in their colleagues and they start adding it everywhere, and then they freak out and say, I can't, I, I'm hearing it all over the place, where do I put it? At which point I usually say, that's good for a footnote. Right. One could do things where you could put like a, a, a bracket, a horizontal bracket underneath um, a square one or a curly bra brace, mm -hmm. and then point to uh, one of these diacritics. Right. Or you could make a very long under tilde, that's the creaky voice symbol, uh, and just make it very long to go the whole length of the word. I never thought of that. <laughs> circle it and put a, uh, uh, the diacritic under the circle. Th those are other strategies you could use for sort of more global application of a diacritic in that way. All right, I think that's enough for that one. Uh, the next group are called by Wikipedia articulation diacritics, which I think is hilariously redundant. I think these are all articulation diacritics, but they're about the specific placement of... Of articulators. Yes. So the first one is the dental diacritic. Uh, it looks like a tooth to my eye. Uh, I, I agree. It's a, I think it's called a bridge. Uh, I'm just thinking of what it says in the Unicode chart. Uh, it looks like a staple, I guess, but it's good that it looks like a tooth because uh, it's uh, articulated on the teeth. So yes. the examples given here are t and d being articulated dentally, making them t and d. I, so typically hitting the back of the upper front yeah. teeth. Because we have a lot of teeth, and when you say it hits your teeth, <laughs> some people start to think about brushing their molars or something right, with right. their tongue tip. Uh, and almost... Well, many of these diacritics have to do with the front edge of the tongue where it's being articulated. Yeah. Um, lots of parts of the tongue could go to different parts, but in this case, it's about the front edge of the tongue on the back of the upper front teeth. And typically, it's applied to alveolar consonants. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, Wells refers to this as TH fronting. Uh, although that's usually uh, labiodental. I'm going to leave that aside. Uh, so if we've got t and d, we do have to be a little careful in demonstrating that, that we're not also making contact with the blade of the tongue against the alveolar ridge. In this case, if we're going to say that it's dental, it's that's where the articulation is happening. Mm. Uh, that it's not also closed somewhere further back in the mouth. Uh, that way I would be able to distinguish between a laminal, which is the one I think is not directly below. 
It, it's sort of diagonally below. Yeah. It's like a little box underneath. So a laminal T is T, a dental T is T. And if I make dental contact, but also make laminal contact and release the laminal contact last, then it's a laminal plosive. Right. But if you do dental, laminal, and release them simultaneously, people will probably hear it as dental. I think you're right. I think they will. Think they will. Think, think, think they will. Think they will. It's interesting, and uh, we're again into the place where diacritics aren't telling us the entire story, but they're pointing us in the right direction. So let's say on that note, we'll put a mark across the page here and then come back. There's plenty more to talk about next time. And uh, you and I, after the show, will discuss when we're going to be recording that. But for now, uh, we'll wrap it up and let our listeners enjoy part one of Diacritics. I want to just remind people that if you want to contact us, you can do so by sending us an email to glossonomia at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time for Diacritics Part 2.